0: There was really only one word of the week that made sense for this week, and that word is tribute. In the last week, we lost two civil rights icons, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And while we would have mourned them deeply whenever we lost them. Their deaths seem especially painful because they're coming at a time when the racial wounds of America are more wide open than they have been in a long time. It's a different kind of sorrow for sure, but it also brings home the fact that that generation that led the civil rights movement is all but gone, if not gone entirely. John Lewis, who died at 80 years old, will always be remembered for the sacrifices he made and for challenging this racist system in such a way that it nearly cost him his life. The longtime congressman is most remembered for leading the March for Voting Rights on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. The local police fractured his skull and violently confronted the other protesters, which is why that march is commonly known as Bloody Sunday. Had John Lewis's blood not been spilled on the street? there would not have been nearly as much urgency for President Lyndon B. Johnson to sign the Voting Rights Act of 1965. C.T. Vivian was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand men. He was in his closest circle of advisors. Like King, he also was a Baptist preacher. From 1963 to 1966, C.T. Vivian oversaw 85 affiliate chapters of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Like John Lewis, C.T. Vivian also shed blood for equality, mortgaged his life so that the future might look differently for us. And that is what makes my heart the heaviest. Of course, things have improved greatly in this nation because of their work. We've made racial strides that I'm sure they thought were impossible, but we didn't complete the mission. We didn't even come close. And both of these fine gentlemen passed away while someone like Donald Trump was in office, the type of man who rejected Basically everything they stood for. John Lewis had to die knowing that despite all he'd done for this country, the president attacked him on Twitter and called him a horrible leader. He died knowing the significant work he put into securing equitable voting rights has been undermined by Republicans. Because as we speak, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has the Voting Rights Advancement Act sitting on his desk where it's been for nearly 300 days because Mitch McConnell does not want the kind of fair elections that John Lewis nearly died for. But best believe, he sure put out a pretty little statement talking about how much John Lewis meant to him. John Lewis and C.T. Vivian will be greatly missed. And no matter how much people try to undermine and tear down their work and their legacies, their stamp on American history, it's too deeply embedded. Rest well, gentlemen. All right, now let's get to today's guest. I swear this has been a long time coming. It is long overdue that this incredible woman is on the podcast. Y'all have heard me talk about her a few times because she is a friend of mine. She's also a business partner too as we're developing a few projects together. But looking at the arc of her career, how she's grown into being one of the most important voices we have in our community, I'm just really proud of her. She's a fantastic actor a producer, an entrepreneur. And the reason she has become such an important voice is because she has stepped out on a limb in a big way to draw attention to a lot of the racism and misogyny in Hollywood. She's spoken up for many marginalized groups and put folks on blast who have tried to silence her for speaking up. Now I'm gonna stop babbling right now and just get to it. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, my girl, Gabrielle Union. Gab, I'm just glad that after coming to my wedding that you're still talking to me because so many of my unruly Detroit relatives and friends just rolled up on you, never calling you by your actual name, referring to you as characters you ain't played in a minute. I mean, I'm I'm legitimately shocked somebody didn't call you ISIS. Like, I'm really shocked.
1: That's my whole life. You know what I mean? And if I wasn't from Omaha, I'd it might have been jarring. But no, I felt right at home.
0: because all i imagine you get it a lot i mean not just because you play really great roles but black people just feel like they know you you know what i'm saying
1: i don't know if you're not an asshole and you kind of seem like you're down to have a drink at the bar people kind of fuck with you so luckily um that's that vibe has kind of taken me through my whole career and to weddings near and far like
0: yours, yes, and and luckily I did have plenty of alcohol at my wedding, so that <laughs> that hopefully helped with the the pesky family members. Because uh, my my husband's um uncle, he had one one wish child, and that was to get a picture with you, and that was his one wish. And he he could have gave less than a fuck about the wedding. He was like. I need this picture with Gabrielle Union. We're like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> we'll see. And he got it. And he did get it. And your wedding. Can we talk about your wedding? Sure. Let's talk about it. It was so beautiful.
1: And so it it had every element. I like a wedding where you could tell there's been a lot of like planning and care for every detail. You guys thought of everything. And I we all appreciated that. Um, but it was just so beautiful. And so y'all. Which is what you know. I think everyone appreciated.
0: Yeah, and y'all, you took the time to think so about the
1: seating. For, I did <laughs> for the table. I
0: did. I totally did.
1: You could you could have jammed me up. You could have jammed me up with the seating, but you did not. You did not.
0: I was not going to do that to you, and that means a lot coming from somebody who had an extraordinary wedding, her damn self, because you had like what nine performers, like I mean. <laughs>
1: It was the Budweiser Superfest. a No. So we uh but it was both of our second wedding. So this second wedding was going to be everything we ever dreamed of. Whether it was people thought it was tacky or unnecessary or over the top, we literally used um Joachim Noah's uh, quote that he'd had for the uh, the Heatles um that you know he said that you know, the Miami heat where Hollywood is hell. So we created a backdrop, a step and repeat, um, for all of our guests when you first walked in that said Hollywood is hell. And we had like a zebra and a ring tail lemur that you could take pictures with. Cause you know, we're Hollywood is hell. <laughs>
0: um, we're at the taping of this podcast. We're a couple of weeks from the NBA coming back. Yeah. This is a very different NBA season for you because, uh, obviously D is, is not going to be in the league and not playing. Um, you You think you'll miss going to the games? no, I mean, I know you could still go, but like you know what I'm saying? yeah,
1: no um <laughs> no that that's just it's I saw so many games, um, and without somebody that I'm personally connected to, it's just not quite the same. Like I may go for like I mean not in the bubble, um but whenever it goes back to normal, like we may go see you know LeBron play or c p or Mel or somebody like that, but is no like watching the kids games like I'll do that but the NBA no I I had a a front row seat for a very very long time and no I'm cool
0: <laughs> like I'm cool so um making that transition from being you know watching your husband play to watching now your son play um Zaire right is is the one who is yeah. is balling uh, are you as tart at his games as you were at these games Yes. Um, <laughs> so D D and uh, Zaire
1: have been filming a show, um, and I keep forgetting. You know, this last school year when you know Zaire and and Davion, our nephew, played on that Sierra Canyon stack team with B J. Boston and Amari Bailey and and Zaire Williams, um, and and Bronny, and it was they had fifteen televised games on ESPN. Like NBA teams don't have fifteen games. It was. It was crazy, but they had this show within a show, basically. And I would always forget that D is completely mic'd up. And the guy would, the producer kept um, You're really, um, I was like, oh snap, I'm cussing a lot. I'm cussing at the refs, I'm cussing at the coaches, I'm cussing at like, yeah. So um, I had only because that the show was taping, I had to kind of pull it together. And it got to a point where you know, Zaire wasn't playing. You know, and you know Dada, which is what we call her nephew, wasn't playing, and it felt like it was making it worse um, and giving people ammunition uh, by us being there, um, like watching them not play. So I, I had to, I, just, I refrained from going because it was going to get ugly. My husband started it on a, on a his TNT show, talking about um, some of our feelings. About how that that season played out, and and I'm and you know you know I'm way worse than D, but um but yeah. So next season, you know, he'll be at Brewster Academy, um, uh, in a part of the world I've never really been. I've never really been that familiar with um, anything above Boston. I don't really know that well. So New England, I don't know if I'm required to like love Tom Brady, hate Tom Brady. Now that he's not there, I don't. I don't know. Um, I will probably lead with, I've been drunk with the Gronkowski brothers a number of times. Um, I may lead with that and hope that, um, I'm, I'm beloved in that part of the world. Uh, when I start talking my shit during those games.
0: And so I love how you just dropped two totally just easy follow-up questions. What is it like to be drunk with the Gronkowski brothers? Cause they strike me as folks that know how to drink. <laughs>
1: When people think of me, they don't generally think of New England athletes.
0: <laughs> but he was they were
1: so cool and so fun. And it just was like, shots on you, shots on me. Our mutual friend, uh, Kelly Carter, uh, was there for one of those nights. Um, and that also was a great time. We just, they're a very good uh, good time family. Not a ton of other uh, families that are that fun. Yeah. Not like that.
0: No, <laughs> no one is shocked by this. Um, so you were saying a second ago about how yeah, you could get it, you can get a little turnt at Zaire's games or whatever. And for people listening who don't know this, you had a hell of an athletic career yourself. I'd like to think so. Yeah, you had a hell of an athletic career yourself in high school. And I think you also played a bit of college soccer as well. Um, but what people may not know, and this is your own description that I'm using, is that you called yourself the Draymond Green of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Up to, of when you played uh high school basketball, uh, or youth basketball rather, and you apparently we were quite aggressive in your, your behavior. What was going on there? Looking back, a lot of um, repressed anger.
1: You know, when you are the chip in the cookie, the only black person for years and years and years and years and years, I think I had a lot of rage um, that was probably should have been directed at different people. But I took it out on the refs and some other players. And uh, my father just reminded me of, I cussed out this girl. Uh, I, I remember what her name is. I don't know if I should say it. Um, she played for this high school called Monte Vista in Danville, California. And she was like their star point guard. And junior and senior year, we just battled. Like we were, you know, some of the top point guards in the league. And I don't remember exactly what caused me to snap but I went up like towards the stands, like, you know, like those push in stands and my dad is sitting there and he's not too far from this girl's mom. And I go, I bet you're really fucking proud. Are you fucking proud? They didn't even know what to, I mean, other than a technique, like they, they're like, is she cussing at a, a parent? Yes, yes I was. Um, like I said, there was a lot of misplaced rage perhaps. Um, so Melissa Cooey, if you're watching or listening, my bad, my bad, maybe
0: y'all didn't quite deserve all of that. <laughs> so how did you get into sports? Like what was it that first drew you to to playing?
1: You know, like in in our family if you don't know sports, play sports, you didn't have a voice. You you know, and I wasn't cute um at all. So I wasn't like the little princess. I've seen your 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 youth pictures.
0: You've been a little hard on yourself. No,
1: I had I sucked my thumb until I was 12. Even during braces, I still sucked my thumb. So I had buck teeth. I couldn't even close my mouth. So, and one stood out further than the other because of where the thumb sat. It was not my finest hour before braces. Um, yeah, I just wasn't. I was gangly. I was one of the darkest people in my family. And you know, colorism and black families. Um, so if you're not like considered cute, you don't really have, there's not really a place for you. So I needed, I wanted to stand out. I wanted to um, be looked at, looked on as valuable and worthy. And my only other route was uh, sports. Uh, My family is massive, massive, massive Cornhusker fans, um, huge basketball fans, football fans. So I got into sports to have that connection with my dad. And it went from, okay, let's start with basketball. Then it, we added softball. Then we added track. Then we added soccer. And then I was just playing them nonstop and the seasons would overlap. And I played them year round until uh, <laughs> I went to Nebraska and they were um, suing, uh, um, uh, was it Title IX? Um, to have parody with, uh, for all varsity sports. And so they were trying to get women's soccer um, to be considered a varsity sport. And they were like, if you come now um, and you know, when we go to a varsity sport, we'll give you a scholarship. And I did not last um, in uh, at the University of Nebraska past that first uh, semester. I lasted exactly one semester. I guess going back to Omaha during the summers did not prepare me for the University of Nebraska and how the campus worked and how the students were sort of segregated. And um, I, I, I was not prepared for all of that. At
0: all, as you just described, you were the 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 chocolate chip. What'd you say? The chocolate chip and the it, the chip and the cookie. The chip and the cookie. That's what it is. Or as I've heard often, the fly and the buttermilk. Right. And so yes, yes, same thing. You always you obviously grew up in in a predominantly um, you know white environment or white neighborhoods. How did growing up that way shape how you felt or what you learned about race?
1: What I learned about race is anything other than white is inherently bad, less than, less educated, less cultured, uh, less deserving um, because you're not white. So the Asians at, you know, in our town, the Latinos uh, in our town, black folks, if you were anything other than Catholic or uh, Mormon in our town, like you're just othered completely. And you, you, my dad said, quick, You have to be bigger, badder, better just to be considered, you know, equal or on par. And oftentimes that wasn't enough. Um, So I was was dropped into such a, such hypocrisy because, you know, everyone holds on to, you know, parts of what Martin Luther King, you know, talked about without ever understanding the the larger context of his work. Um, But it's, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you just... You know, pull your pants up, speak the Queen's English, wear your hair um, straight, um, move to these certain neighborhoods, go to these certain schools, then you will be seen as equal. And when you do all of that and you're you're chasing that dragon, right, because, you know, respectability politics are like a drug. And they, and they give you a little bit and then you're like, oh, I, I but listen to how I'm sad. Listen to how I speak. But, but I've got the straightest of straight, straight hair. I've got that Hawaiian silk. And, they, and then the goalpost moves again. And then the goalpost moves again. And no matter what they say you need to do or accomplish or act like or be like, when you do all of those things and this equality that they promise you never happens and never materializes, you are... Disillusion. You are angry. You are. Um, you just feel kind of permanently displaced because there's no backup coming. There is no cavalry that is going to arrive because you're the chip in the cookie, and so you depend on allies showing up. And for a lot of a lot of white folks, they don't know what that actually looks like. Um, a lot of you know. After I graduated. And, you know, I would talk about certain things or certainly on my book tour, um, you know, because I talked a lot about growing up in, in Pleasanton, in Northern California, in the Bay Area. And, you know, folks from home were like, that never happened. And I was like, yes, it did. And you were silent because I looked to you and I remember the look on your face. Well, well, when my parents said that I was a nigger lover, what they meant was, I'm like, was it economic anxiety? What well, I mean what What caused them to blurt out nigger lover? what 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 was it exactly from the comfort of your you know, very nice home in this very nice neighborhood? What was it if it wasn't racism? you know, um, It's just very isolating. It is a very isolating feeling. And what some folks think is that, you are. You believe that you are the exceptional Negro. That you like being the only one in the room. I actually retweeted um, Ebony Davis' um, her tweet last night, where she was like, "I've never felt exceptional being the only Black person in the room. I've just felt alone." And I was like, "Yes, <laughs> you know, very alone." That what people say it takes to be to be accepted and seen is fool's gold. It's it's all it's
0: fool's gold. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us grew up under that same, um, you know, we grew up with parents who believed in respectability politics and I don't blame them necessarily because I think they had to believe in it. They had to believe this was all worth something that if you just could achieve your way out of racism, then something was waiting on the end of that rainbow. And as you said, we often found out what was waiting was more racism. Okay. More racism. More racism. That Here's your prize, Johnny. Tell them what they won. More racism. That's what it was. <laughs> and so um, I- I'm wondering, given how you grew up and now you're a stepmother and a mother to five children, how have you altered um, or evolved your conversations about race to them, especially now?
1: I mean, I, I wrote about uh, the talk in um, We're Gonna Need More Wine and you know, our our boys are going away. They're not going to be coming home to us. They will physically be in different schools in different parts of the country. And when they straight up ask, like, what what could George Floyd, what could he have done? What like when you see the black man get get murdered in uh, in front of the Wendy's in Atlanta, um, and you see the footage of him having. A calm, you know, conversation thirty minutes before he's murdered, asking them what else can I do to get out, you know, to get out of this situation, and I don't have an answer. All of the things that we taught our, our kids, our black children, to do, you know, um, you do everything they say, and you speak to them in a very, you know, deferential way. You do whatever it takes to come home to us, and we will handle it. Um, but when you do all of those things, and and you can see it on video, people doing all of the things that that black parents have taught their kids to do, and you see these people doing all of those things, and they're still murdered, you know. And people are like you got to you got to make sure your your kids know their rights. Well, Sandra Bland knew her rights, and she was speaking about her rights when she, you know, which is what led to her death. So I. My answer, I don't know. And that is a scary, infuriating, uh, I, I, if, is the word, it's almost a deadening that happens, a numbing where there is literally nothing you can say that is the magic ticket out of police brutality. Death is still always on the table, it seems. And I don't know. And that and that is literally what I say, is I don't know. I thought, you know, giving you like that that play-by-play of what to do. You know, I talk about when they were younger, them wanting to walk our dogs, you know, around our street in Miami. That is a combo of very international, uh, seasonal neighbors who don't live there all the time, who who in their home countries have very negative views of Black folks mixed in with, you know, Miami residents who have, you know, some have a very complicated relationship with people of color. And how do you walk down how do you walk a Maltese down the street? And I had to say, don't put the 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 leash, you know, in your pocket when you walk. Loop it around your thumb so all your other fingers and have your other fingers laid out. So it can never be you can never be thought of as, as concealing. And eventually we only allowed them to walk the dogs from our houses to Chris Bosch's. Because it was eleven doors down, and our security, we, we let them think that they were, you know, unsupervised. But our security was, you know, on the phone with their security, making sure our kids got to their house and back, and that was all you could do. And the Bosches also happened to be the only other black people on the street. Like, um, but it's like it, it's it's that shit. It's explaining how Uncle Braun, you know, during the finals a couple years ago, one of the biggest you know athletes in the world one of the most recognizable people period in the world still had nigger written on his door there is no excuse for racism there is no excusing police brutality there is no excusing anti black racism or white supremacy and and all of the ways you people can you know comport themselves to, to make it make sense when it will never make sense.
0: And what was amazing about, um, you know, the thing with LeBron is that there are a lot of people who, much like Bubba Wallace, thought it was a hoax, right? <laughs> Which was crazy to me. Like, wh- why would LeBron need to make that up? Like, it, 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 he's like, you know what? I'm already not famous enough. There's not enough people who know I am. Let me just make up the fact that somebody sprayed nigger on my house. Like, wh- what was that supposed to get him, you know? Let me tell you, Jamel, it's baffling because it and that's that's the insidious part
1: of of experiencing racism is being told that you're not experiencing racism, and so many people that I know look at the trauma like a mosquito bite, annoying, maybe it gets infected, but as long as you wear you know bug spray or off or deep woods off or straight up deep, then you should be good, and it's like the bug spray is respectability politics, and it's like. In the same way, if a mosquito wants to bite your ass, it will find the part of your body that was not covered in, in, in bug spray and bite you. That's just what it is. And if somebody wants to be racist, they will be racist. There's nothing you can do with your blackness or your Latinxness or your Asianness or your there's nothing you can do to escape. It's going down. It is a reckoning right now. And every day I'm like, who's next? because there is so much more room in that pool of racists, and I can't wait till that pool is full and we go to the next pool. Like, it, it, every industry is really experiencing a reckoning. Some slow. I wish it would speed up, because um, it's not for a lack of facts and well-documented um, <laughs> across every industry. Um, but I'm glad, it's, I'm glad it's happening, as slow as it, it is and, and what it took. How many, dead bo- how many murdered Black bodies needed to appear across the timeline before people are like, oh my God. So touching your hair was bad? Like me running a, a whole ass corporation, but not having anyone that doesn't look like me in positions of power is bad? Huh. And here we are.
0: You um you had to deal with one really big mosquito bite that there was no repellent you could have worn to, for what happened to you in America's Got Talent. I definitely want to get into that. Um, I want to talk about the two favorite people in the Union Wade family, which are Kavia and Zaya. <laughs> Those are my two favorites. No disrespect to you and D.
1: We will not tell the others. We will
0: not tell the no, others. Don't tell the other ones. Please don't tell the boys. But like the, these are my two favorite. We're going to talk about that and some of um upcoming projects. Hopefully you can get uh, give me some details about Um, But we'll take a quick break and more with Gabrielle Union when we come back. So uh, before we take the break, I mentioned America's Got Talent, um, which you have been very vocal about the racism that you experienced there. But um, let's talk about Terry Crews for a minute. We're talking about Ugh. people who think they're exceptional Negroes. I mean, baby, like, what the fuck is up with this dude? Like, I just I don't know, man. Because
1: <laughs> you know, people hit me all day long and are like, what what's what's happening? And the only thing I know for sure is that Terry Crews gets three checks from NBC. So I don't know if being worried about job stability, which listen, we all know that if you speak up about racism and white supremacy, you absolutely can be shown the door. We both are very clear on that. Um, so I don't know if that is, is, is the motivation. I will say watching Don Lemon uh, drag his former self and so succinctly educate Terry Crews who in one of our group chats, uh, Jamel, where we were like, "How I wonder how long before Terry mentions Chicago and Black on Black crime. And it was like 15 minutes later. We were like, damn.
0: He hit the whole bingo board. Hit the whole bingo board. <laughs> right
1: on cue. It's like, oh my, you know, people were like, well, you weren't the only Black person on America's Got Talent. I was like, no, I was on there with Terry Cruz. So based on his recent actions do you really think terry cruz was um a, an ally was uh, was helpful was a sounding board i think terry cruz is is showing us who he is and what he does uh, you know during times of adversity and it's not solidarity even though you know you, you know years ago Um, You know, when Terry came forward with his assault, uh, which, again, I stood up first, celebs, if you will, to to say, like, I know Terry Crews and I believe him. And just to offer solidarity and not to say if I offer you solidarity, I expect, you know, you to be the getaway driver during a bank robbery. That's that's what he made it sound like in one of those series of tweets. If you saw something, say something. But if you didn't have my, you know, experience the way that I experienced it, you also have an option to say, yeah, no, like I believe Gab, I I just had a different experience. And end of story. You don't have to do a press tour where your sole objective is to discredit and malign. You you know, I've been in Hollywood a long time. There's very little that surprises me, Um, but that was very disappointing for sure.
0: You know? No, I mean, because it was an unnecessary L too. It wasn't as if, as you mentioned, he didn't, he could have easily just said, okay, that was her experience. You know, my name is Bennett. I ain't in it. Like you could have just left it at that. But he went out of his way to invalidate you when he did that piece on the Today Show. And all of us were like, hold up now. Like, <laughs> you know, you, it's one thing we understand. We all got somebody to answer to. and We all got bills to pay, but it's just certain shit. That's just You just don't do that. And that was my first disappointment. And as you said, that should have been our indication, our red flag that he was on some other shit. And now again, taking a lot of unnecessary L's because I don't think anybody's waking up like we care what the fuck Terry Crews thinks about what's happening in our country. But he's like, But let me offer it to you. <laughs> Literally no one, Terry, is asking. Literally
1: no one. Like at the end of the day, the work that I am doing to, to make sure that there, that, that NBC is a more fair and equitable um place of employment will benefit you as well. So it's okay to eat your cereal and let me do my thing and get out of the way. If you're not going to help, then get out of the way. If you don't feel financially comfortable or spiritually comfortable, or you flat out disagree, but at the end of the day, you, he will benefit from a safer, um, more equitable workplace from what I stuck my neck out to do and got fired for, You know, instead of actively working against progress. And just since I've been so vocal about what happened, the floodgates have opened. The, this reckoning is is just hitting. We are like in the parking lot at the beach. We're not even in the sand. We're not in the water. There is so much more that is coming. And as he said, choosing this hill to die on, um, I, I have a feeling he will probably regret it for a thousand reasons, you know, very soon. So yeah, <laughs> from the very beginning of, you know, literally day one. And it's what all of us face, you know, at, at work, you know, ha- am I going to be able to, to enjoy this great opportunity, these dream jobs, these, you know, great positions, or sometimes not great positions, but am I going to be able to do my job without having to be the, the angry black woman that points out racism, you know, Homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia. Trying to do my job without adding a thousand different other jobs. And literally, in the first hour, when Simon Cowell walks in with a lit cigarette, I mean, you've worked on a thousand and one different productions and different, you know, in in uh, uh, news media, you know, like sports. Have you ever been inside an enclosed building with somebody smoking cigarettes? Like it's not a thing.
0: No, it's not it's not, it's like never a thing.
1: <laughs> it's never a thing. I it, I've never complained about it. People who smoke they go outside. It's not a, it's not a thing. I don't care if you smoke outside. I don't have this like no one can smoke around me not even outside. Like everyone just goes outside. But I happen to have a strong allergic reaction to the chemicals that are emitted when you exhale c- cigarette smoke. And immediately I am it it it, it manifests like the worst cold that you could ever have now if i'm in another country and i'm sitting outside and people are smoking i can move i can choose to leave the restaurant i can't leave my job in the first hour you know and you don't like how do you say to the to the not only does he own agt he is the executive producer and the lead judge but i i can't do my job my voice is already deep to begin with you know, when it's impacted, you know, by by the cigarette smoke, I, can't, I literally can't do my job. But I got to report the, the boss and report him to who? It's like reporting police brutality to who? Like this whole notion of, well, go to HR. Well, who pays HR? HR is not there for you, boo-boo. HR is there to protect the company. HR is there, is there to protect the powerful people. What it can do is create a paper trail. So in a case of suing someone like I am now, you have this paper trail of every time something uh, was reported to HR. It, it does help in the long run if you want to take legal action, but it's like, damn, It's it, the first hour? Come on. But it just, every day, it was something else. And by the time we got to the Blackface Hands, you know, uh, act, where this guy came out and he was pretending to be all these different singers, performers and when he got to a black act, he put on black gloves. And so I'm immediately hitting my ex. And everyone's like, and I didn't hit the ex. I was like the Paula Abdul, you know, like I just gave everyone a shot. I've been, I'm talent. Like you want, you know, you just want people to let you get through it you know your audition piece. You don't have to be an asshole. So when I hit the X so fast, everyone's like, what why would you hit the X? And so finally the act is over. And they were like, so Gab, tell us about the ex. I was like, nah, I'm good. Because the reason I can't explain why blackface is wrong is because sitting next to me is Julianne Huff, who God bless her, she seems like a sweet person who happened to do blackface for Halloween. So think of that as you will. But this is in this, mind you, this is in the same time frame of they just fired Megan Kelly about over her blackface statements. They hired somehow Julianne Huff, who they guess they didn't care about that blackface. A lot of these people who were, you know, who, who had to approve all these blackface episodes are still around. Um, but those episodes, blackface, good. Megan Kelly, blackface, bad. Julianne Huff, blackface, okay. Um, so I hit the buzzer. I'm erring on the side of blackface is never good, um, but they want me to explain it. And I was like, if I explain it, then I'm going to remind everyone that, my coworker did blackface and I don't, uh, what do you want me to do here? So the, the producer comes up and he was like, ah, you caught that, huh? And I was like, so you knew ahead of time that he was gonna do blackface hands? And he was like, yeah, well, he insisted. He insisted on racism. Come to find out during this investigation that a more senior woman executive had, had seen the blackface hands during the rehearsal and said, you can't let the guy, you know, perform. And this, you know, white male producer was like, who's lower level, was like, eh. And when I confronted him, what he admitted to the investigator was, she's just so intimidating. I was scared. So when I confront you with the truth that you overrode a more senior woman who called this out, you decided to put this act on. And when I called you on it, you claim to be intimidated and scared. It was just so much of that. When you have Jay Leno on and he does a joke, which is not a joke, saying that a picture of Simon and his dogs look like something you'd find at a Korean restaurant. And I'm like the only one that's like frozen, like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. 20 seconds I'm out. Um, uh, or is it, a, is it going to be a race to HR? Cause like, who's going to report first? Like I, you know, what do we need to do? Cause this is, this is wrong. They didn't do anything about it. They don't care. They absolutely do not care. Cause there should have been something said to everyone that was exposed to that, including the lone Asian woman that uh, was in the room who I, we locked eyes and I was like, I got it. Simon Cowell said, yeah, you know, I, I also was very offended by that joke because you know how much I love dogs. And I never shared that part, but I saw watching how our president has talked about the Kung Fu virus and the demonization of Asian Americans. It's these jokes, these statements, they lead to actual terror and death and mayhem and trauma for uh, our fellow people of color. and. While I reported Jay Leno and, and I, I told the investigator about what Simon, you know, what Simon had said, the more it's, I, it, it sat with me. It's like as bad as Jay Leno's racist ass joke was, Simon's reaction is worse. And then recently his attorney called my attorney was like, you know, I, you know Simon's just very upset because, you know, he also is really upset about this Jay Leno joke. Mm-hmm because you know how much he loves dogs. And my lawyer is like, it's racist, all of it is racist. And the fact that you guys didn't give a shit then, you don't give a shit now, you showed how much you didn't give a shit because you brought Jay Leno back later. If you wanted just to make an example of, we don't tolerate racism, not only would you have addressed everyone that has been exposed to numerous racist incidents, you would have not brought this this man back. and. Just throughout this whole process, you know, by the time we get to the investigation and they've sent Terry Crews out, you know, on his discredit me tour, and you have the head of the network calling my agent and saying, Gab, better watch who she calls a racist in the middle of an open investigation about claims of racism uh, and a number of, a host of other things. If this is what is happening at the top, to me, someone with high visibility, large platform, and even more famous, bigger platform husband, this is what they're doing to me. Openly, willingly, don't give a shit. Imagine what they're doing to people who don't have the money to fight them, who don't have the, the reputation and a community to back them. You're, you, you get railroaded and you're out the door and you're seeing this over and over and over again. And NBC you know, was made aware, if they weren't aware, they have been made aware that the head of, of their network did this and they still didn't do anything. So it lets you know when you send out these uh, black boxes of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, you're actually showing us every day that our lives and our careers and our dreams and our hopes and our humanity actually don't fucking matter because everyone at that network, you know, and, and you know, NBC, Universal, Comcast, they all knew what Paul Teleghi, I keep mispronouncing his name, I think it's a mental block, um, did and they didn't care and they protected him over the years they have promoted him because they felt he as problematic as he is is worthy of that while their black talent is not
0: well um this was a fight that you obviously you didn't have to pick and i assume i'm just gonna imagine throughout your career you have had to experience similar things probably worse um in different professional environments that you have been in you have now reached a point you have not now because that makes it seem like this just happened in 2020 you have for a while been at the point of no fucks given i'm a whole people accountable that need to be held accountable and really be a voice out here I- i'm wondering what has allowed you to get to that space and what has kept you going because you know, Hollywood is so fickle. I don't think people really understand how every time you speak to marginalized communities and speak to what we experience, you are literally always putting your career on the line, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I'm just wondering how you, why you seem so comfortable in this space and and, and just a little bit of, of how you got here before we wrap up. No, I mean, to
1: be completely honest, money, money, you get to a point where, how many checks do I need? How much money do I have, in, have to have in the bank before I call people out? Like how, how much security, financial security, do I need to have if I never work again? How much do I need to have in the bank? What is that magic number? You know, like I'm married to, to you know, a very famous, you know, athlete who's made a lot of money over the years who continues to make a lot of money, who continues to ride out for me. How much do we have to have as a union wage household before we can speak truth to power? And I don't know why I, it, 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 I didn't think of it this way, but I've been suing my employer since I was 19 when I was raped at gunpoint at Payless Shoe Source. I sued them when I discovered that they knew who he was after the first robbery. And we were like the fourth or fifth. And they sent us a, um, a notice about changing the price of a shoe, but couldn't tell us that there's a man targeting Payless Shoe Sources. And all I could think of is this didn't have to happen to me and it shouldn't have to happen to anybody else. So I spoke out, BET. Like I got a lot, listen, so if you hire me and you openly like practice discrimination and and you fuck over marginalized folks, I'm not the person to do this in front of. Like, I'm not, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not new to this, baby. I'm true to this and I'm straight. If I never work again, I'm okay. You know what I mean? My husband's okay. Our families are okay. But what people are faced with every day is I don't have that money. I don't have that platform. I don't have a wealthy spouse. At what cost am I willing to pay to do the right thing in speaking up? And when I see all the careers that have been damaged, ruined because of discrimination and racism and, and anti blackness, I can't. I will never shut up. Like somebody literally was like, I didn't know she was like black, black. And I'm like, what the fuck? I, I don't I don't know how much more bliggity black I can be. Or do you listen to my interviews? Or are you just looking at the fashion? Like, I don't know. Like, like when, like on AGT, you know, they thought the big smoking gun was. It turns out the the biracial black woman producer didn't say uh, that my hair was too black. What she said was my hair was too wild, and they were like, ah, got her. And I'm like, if you had only hired. Uh more black people um to run this by, you would know it's the same shit, motherfucker. It's the same motherfucking shit. Too wild for what? Too wild for whom?
0: Right. It's a whom, yeah. That's
1: not a continuity note. Like I'm wearing my natural hairstyles, and the note that you sent the black woman to deliver, who has a different grade of hair, who has a different, you know, color skin, was too wild and you thought that was a smoking gun that was gonna sink me, baby. They were like, well, you said some things off, you know, in a hot, in, you know, off, of, off camera that, you know, we leaked that. I'm like, baby, are you threatening me? Is this the game you wanna play? When, if I, you know, I'm suing you,
0: I can pull Discovery for years. Is this the game you want to play? I was about to say, I know you got more more receipts on your side than they do.
1: <laughs> right? I'm like, listen, if you wanna put me talking cash shit about how I was feeling after you railroaded a young black contestant and then you then facetiously asked me if I was gonna be able to do my job and and tell a white contestant that they weren't gonna move forward in the in the competition and, and how and how I, I responded to your smart ass mouth. I'm not afraid of the truth, release it, release it. And if you don't think that there'll be people who stand behind me who understand what gaslighting is and understood what, what, what I was put through, please, like, I'm not afraid of the truth. Y'all are afraid of the truth because you know, you've been doing foul things for many years and you've gotten away with it and you've been promoted and protected. And the gig is up because I have privilege to battle you. And I have a community that is, sick of the shit and the gig is up.
0: And more importantly, a community that will write for you. Um, I want to ask you about something real quick before we play a very quick game that I like to play with all my guests. Uh, Halle Berry uh, decided uh, she was supposed to play a transgender man in a movie and she has decided to back out of that role. Uh, as anybody who follows you knows, um, you, know, you are the mother to a transgender daughter as well. Zaya, one of my favorite people, I feel like she has photography in her future because those, those photos that she took of you for that mag, I was like, dang, she got an eye. Ah, I see it. Um, but nevertheless, what did you what did you make a, of Hallie's decision as somebody who is currently parenting a transgender child?
1: Yeah. So I finally read the article. I didn't you know, I was off of social media um, working. So I, I had missed the, um, you know, the the controversy. So I kind of came a little late to the party. So I saw her her. Um, apology and her, um, educating herself. So I had kind of missed the, what she had said originally. So I had to kind of research and do a little more digging to see what she had actually said during the interview that was so controversial. And the easiest way to disrespect the transgender community is to misgender someone. And, um, Disclosure on Netflix is a, is an amazingly uh, beautiful and informative documentary that everyone should watch. And certainly, um, hollywood creatives uh and she she referenced that she watched that um and learned a lot but you do never misgender um uh transgender folks it's always just best to ask people their preferred pronouns um the the point that she was trying to make is is you know is invalid and she and she you know caught to that as well in her um apology i think there are so many people like mama wade who's a pastor you know um we all had to educate ourselves um and because we weren't and you know we we didn't understand the the trauma um and the harm that was caught that's caused by misgendering someone um zaya was like okay i will give y'all through the end of the school year to get my pronouns right but after that it's it's an act of war like get it right y'all are real smart people like get it right I love it <laughs> you know what I mean and it's, it's interesting that the only person who who never misgenders uh Zaya who never has had a slip up is Dwayne and seeing how far he has come and how much he had to learn um and what, we we come to the movement as very humble and very ignorant allies and we ask to be drug for filth if we get it wrong we ask for as much information as much resources um, as much access to community for for us, you know to learn and to create a safer space for our child and, and all kids. We, we all have to come to our learning and understanding in in different ways. I hope more people will learn from all of our our missteps. Um, so you do, so we just don't bring any more harm to the most hunted you know um, marginalized community. We, we are losing um, our black and brown transistors at an alarming um, and frightening rate. And if we are not doing everything in our power to get it right, um, we're sacrificing more of us. And a lot of people want us to sacrifice Zaya. Um, I've literally been called a witch. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because there's this, this notion that we can't all exist as we are. And for us to, for any one of us to exist in any kind of different sort of way, and and, in all of our, in our beauty and, and, and splendor and wonderful selves, we should cast them out. We should shun them. We should put them in those camps where they try to, you know, make you something else.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Conversion therapy. That's what it is.
1: Conversion therapy, which is the worst thing ever. Um, But we will never turn our back on our baby and we're not going to turn our back on your baby either. We're always going to fight for the most marginalized and, if that takes more education for us, you have to humble yourself, shush, before you center yourself in in a um, as an ally. Um, we have to just keep doing that. And it's not about our ego, it's about safety. It's about, ex- it, 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 we shot past acceptance to safety um, and just recognizing all of our humanity. And you don't do that by putting your children out. Like our kids aren't fucking disposable. People aren't fucking disposable. And, the quicker that we get to that, um, man, we're going to save a lot more lives.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, that's what I, that I've, I've commented upon it many times on this podcast because I don't think people understand that the trans community is so much more vulnerable than we, we can truly conceptualize. And particularly when you look at some of the depression rates, the suicide rates, what you guys, this type of support you guys are so, showing, Ziya, is literally saving another child's life. And I don't know if people understand that context, um, but it is. And so when um, certain folks tried to come for you, I was like, I'll be damned y'all do this on my watch like that shit ain't happening because uh you know I don't think they understand um, what's at stake and some people just need to get over themselves. It's like, Allowing for other people to exist in the world doesn't harm you in any way. Like, what the fuck do you care about? <laughs> you, uh, nobody has to raise your child but you. L- l- worry about your own damn children, okay? <laughs> Instead of worrying about what's happening in your household. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, real quick before I get you out of here, Gab. I play a game with all my guests. You listen to the pods, you know what it is. It's called This or That. You got two choices, two choices, right? Pick one uh make a decision firm fate of the humanity depends on it okay i'm gonna start with an easy one which is a lie ha! can you stand the rain or stay can you stand the rain i know you see i knew you're a new edition head i knew there was literally nothing i could put against can you stay in the rain that you pick against new edition i know how you do <laughs> uh all right um For you, what was more awkward, bringing tuna casserole to a dinner party with Obama or offering Prince tuna casserole? And this tuna casserole must be the shit that you make because to bring it, it must be the shit.
1: I love tuna casserole in a way that is
0: absurd. Uh, Offering it to Prince was way more um, awkward. Does he seem like the tuna casserole kind of eating dude to you? Or you? Just... Well, he's from Minnesota. Just like
1: Barack, you know, he's Chicago, Midwestern. I thought like a hot dish, a little tuna casserole wasn't like weird. Turns out, I guess it is. A little weird to offer Prince. Some tuna casserole.
0: A tuna casserole. little odd. Little, uh, um, Tommy Frazier or Eric Crouch? That's
1: not even close. Like literally, if I walk out this door, my Tommy Frazier jersey is is right there. Um, I moved it myself because I didn't trust anybody with my Tommy Fraser jersey. Um, you saw, you, you came to our house in Miami, you, you see my Tommy Fraser jersey, my Tommy Fraser helmet, like you got your San Francisco 49er helmet. Like I don't play. He is, it used to be Tom Osborne, it is Tommy Fraser. They're like
0: all praise too. All right, um, turning to two of your more popular roles, um, Isis or Sid? Oh, well, Sid, because the, the checks keep coming. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sid has is, is been, you know, re-
1: resuscitated in LA's finance. You know, we finished season two. So um, I love ISIS, but Sid, Sid keeps the checks coming.
0: Yeah. When people recognize you, when civilians recognize you, what are they, They, they you said Mar- being Mary Jane is the thing they kind of say to you the most, right?
1: Well, it depends on who it is. Right. Uh, most black people, uh, Automatically, they're like, Mary Jane, when is she coming back? And I'm like, um,
0: (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, never. I still don't know how I feel about you winding up with Justin, but that's okay. (laughs) Shout out to Michael Ely. My bad. Everybody was like, this isn't fair. No, not Ricky from, you know, Boys in the Hood. You just threw that Morris Chestnut at his last minute. It was like, oh, it's so tough. Finally, lastness to that Jersey Mike's Italian subs or Runza? Who told you about the Jersey Mikes Italian sub? I know shit, dog. I got I know shit. i got I got informants out there. <laughs> they tell me shit
1: it's a it's a Jersey Mikes, but don't tell anyone from Nebraska.
0: They'll never hear about it.
1: like any any Italian sub is a problem, but the Jersey Mike one is, yeah, I'll fight you for a Jersey Mike Italian sub
0: that you picked that over Runza, which I must say' a for those who don't know. it's a Nebraska staple. It kind of looks like a hot pocket. <laughs> like, it's a
1: it's like a big hot pocket with like loose meat and cabbage it sounds gross to people who have not had it like Dwayne was like that is disgusting and I'm like shush they'll hear you hear you and then you'll be put out like shut up we're in Memorial Stadium you're gonna do these skis and you're gonna eat the damn runs oh, up better put on this Tommy Fraser jersey and shut up shut
0: up uh, apparently, it's no match for a Jersey Mike Italian sub. And I feel like they owe you a sponsorship or at least to to ship you a whole box of um, those subs. Because I, in my life, don't know anybody who loves <laughs> Jersey Mike's as much as you, apparently. Oh, my God. I love it. Uh, well, look, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got this done. Um, I mean, we could do an entire podcast just on our group chats. because. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to. We're gonna need a part two. We're gonna we need a part two.
1: Yeah, because I want to talk about the bubble. I want to talk about the WNBA bubble. I, I, there's so many things I want to cover.
0: We will be able to get get off your valiant fight toward racism, and the next time it'll be be all sports questions. And
1: we're gonna be like BET After Dark, but we're get like after you know after the day is done, we'll have a cocktail and we will dissect some of these things. Because
0: not that it would have preceded us from doing it now, because it's, it's during the middle of the day technically. But next time we'll we'll give it an evening tent. We'll have more wine plug um, <laughs> and some D Wade sellers. I'll we'll send you some wine. I, I would say I've been waiting on my on my hookup. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we have D Wade's wine. We also have your wonderful children's book. Welcome to the party. Um, I encourage everybody to pick that up. It's a beautifully illustrated, wonderful book with a great message. And I just hope one day I will be as adult as Kavya James because right now I'm not. So I just want to grow up and be just like her and have her faces and everything. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. It seems like we can't even catch our breath before we are traumatized by some more bullshit. As if we don't have enough to worry about with coronavirus, high unemployment, just a lot of things going on. Here comes Trump sending troops into U.S. cities to quell the quote-unquote violence. It started in Portland. As of the taping of this podcast, troops are on their way to Chicago, the city that has become this administration's favorite pinata. If you think that sounds like fascism, It is. If you think it sounds like authoritarianism, it is. If you think this sounds like an overreach by the government to create fear in people and by people, I mean white people. It is. This conveniently comes when Trump's numbers are in a free fall in the polls. In case you hadn't figured this out, Trump is running a campaign on one thing, scaring white folks so that they will run to the polls and vote for him. He wants white people to believe that Chicago, Portland, New York, and other cities are totally out of control. And he, the law and order president, will use his firm hand to settle down this leftist, Antifa-loving, America-hating protesters. By the way, Antifa isn't a thing. It's a boogeyman the president and other right-wingers use because they aren't original nor creative. It's not really even a real organization white supremacist organizations are far more organized and deadly. Anyway, beyond just for selfish reasons, the other reason the president is sending in federal troops to Chicago in particular is because he also wants to send the message to white folks. He's got the Negroes under control. Yes, it is true. Chicago has a serious gun violence problem. From last year to this year, murders in Chicago are up 48%. You might hear that number and think, well, I can see why Chicago needs the feds. Shouldn't we want them there? No, we shouldn't. And here's why. Now, realize I'm speaking from my perspective as a Detroit native. Detroit has been in the top 10, sometimes the top five, and sometimes number one when it comes to murders. There was many a year when I was growing up that Detroit reached 600 murders. Horrible, I know. But we always want to throw those statistics out about the murder rate. And not give any context. Guess what state had the highest unemployment rate for black folks? Illinois. Where's Chicago? In Illinois. In fact, since 2016, Illinois has had the highest unemployment rate for black people nearly every quarter. 45% of young black men in Chicago are either jobless or out of school. Oh, I know that's red meat to the conservatives because I'm sure the first thing they'll say is, well, that just proves they're lazy. They don't want it enough because in this country, when it's poverty or unemployment, it's a moral failure. If it's black people, if it's white people, they deserve empathy and options. So why then is joblessness so high in Chicago? Could it be that between 2000 and 2010, Cook County, which is Chicago, lost more than a quarter of its manufacturing jobs? The only two cities who lost more jobs during that time period was Los Angeles County and Wayne County, which happens to be the county in which my city, Detroit, is located. Also of note, a third of young black men drop out of high school in Chicago. So pop quiz, boys and girls, when you combine lack of education with joblessness, what do you usually get? Oh, that's right. Crime. Now, throw in a pandemic where an unprecedented number of black people are out of work and a lack of trust in the police, which unfortunately has led to disputes turning deadly and for good measure, mix in a historically underfunded and bad educational system. And this is what you have now, Smokey, I ain't the smartest person in the world. But how will sending secret police to Chicago help with joblessness and a crumbling education system? Oh, wait, it doesn't. But what it does do is make white folks feel safe that, again, these Negroes are being kept in order by their president. What I want to know is where are all those white folks forever hollering about their rights, protecting freedoms, the ones that when you ask them why they need fifty, eleven machine guns, they always tell you that is for that unlikely day that the government turns its military on the citizens. Where are all those white folks who have been telling the police, the pastor and everybody in between to fuck off because they have to wear a mask? Where are my constitution loving white folks at? I thought this situation of federal troops coming into cities was tailor made for your anarchy. Oh, wait, they're silent because they don't care if our rights are violated or if we're over police. All that freedom and liberty jazz doesn't apply to black people. My bad. I don't know why I thought it did. Listen, I just highlighted the issues in education and employment, and there is even more to it than that. For example, how come nobody is asking where all these guns are coming from? Because I'll have you know that Chicago has some of the toughest gun laws in the nation, despite what the murder rate would suggest. Well, according to an NBC report, one in five guns seized by the police came from Indiana and 60% of the guns that are seized in total come from out of state. So that didn't make more sense to, I don't know, stop the influx of guns, focus on that. But no, they won't do that because then they might have to crack down on the gun industry. And since people in this country love guns, that leaves the easiest, most pointless solution Available. The feds showing up in Chicago harassing underserved and vulnerable communities, which will result in more arrests. And then they will try to massage this narrative that their arrests were proof that the extensiveness of the violence was indeed as great as they said. Problem properly not solved. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.